All right. Here we go. Here we go. <clears throat> we are in a section of Isaiah. Uh, a long time ago in a Sunday school class far, far away. Grateful for uh, Lee and the men that uh, filled in uh, while I was out. For Tyler. Uh, grateful that we have... Uh, Uh, So many gifted teachers that can fill in and teach and minister to us. Uh, Go back to Isaiah chapter 20. That's where we're starting today. And uh, as you're turning there, let me just remind you where we're at. Uh, Isaiah has different sections of the book. We have finished the first section that has uh, really recounted the sin of the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. And we've talked about Isaiah's calling and his ministry to them. We've seen... Uh, scene after scene after scene of the spiritual challenges that these uh, people of God are facing and the fact that they are going after other gods, they are ignoring issues of justice and righteousness in the nation, they are siding with foreign nations that they were forbidden uh, to do so. And uh, so now that section of the book has ceased and now we're looking primarily at a section regarding the judgment of the nations. And we're just about ready to finish up this section, actually. But you can see on our map here uh, some of the, the nations in regarding the political situation in Isaiah's time. Uh, and we need to get familiar with these nations because this whole section of Isaiah is talking about many of the countries that you see and cities that you see represented on the map here. Okay, so you guys got that there? Uh, other side of the room, you got that? And then uh, this map, I like this map because this this one takes the this previous map and it zeroes in on the nations uh, that are particularly addressed in this section of Isaiah. So Tyre and Damascus, Assyria, Moab, so on and so forth. Okay. So uh, we find ourselves today in uh, in chapter 20. And uh, remember, as we as we come back to this, that there is a pattern, and, and I hope this is helpful. One of my goals is not just to you know, teach you the book of Isaiah, but to teach you how to read Isaiah. And Isaiah is one of those books you can get lost in the poetic details. I don't know if you do this. You, you, be honest. You ever reading your Bible and you got, you got your coffee, but it hasn't quite kicked in yet? And you're, you're there and you're like, I really want to know what this is about. And I just have no idea what it's about. And, it's, uh, and, then you, and you're, your eyes are moving down the page, but your mind is not in the text anymore, right? You ever done that? And, and one of the challenges is this is a difficult book because it is history, it is poetical, and it is prophecy. And, and those are three things that are very difficult to interpret in Scripture. <clears throat> One of the ways that I want to help you to read Isaiah is to recognize there is a structure and there is a pattern. And knowing that structure and pattern will help you to read, uh, hopefully more intelligibly and, and recognizing what's going on. Now, the pattern in this section is identified with that little phrase, the oracle concerning or the utterance concerning. And we see that uh, at the uh, in all of those verses and that little phrase is what is marking off all the key sections of our book okay so just remember that now what's interesting we have talked about just by way of review we've talked about moab we've talked about damascus we've talked about um philistia assyria babylon ethiopia and egypt and we've we've looked at all of those uh, nations in terms of the judgment. Well, we're going to look at a handful of nations again today, 
And uh, remember where we started with Hebrews. Hebrews reminds us that faith is acting on the promises of God in spite of what? In, in spite of circumstances. Amber, would you say? Circumstances. In spite of difficulties. In spite of what looks like contrary uh, realities. Isn't that so often the case that when we're sitting here in a Sunday school class and we say, do you believe in the Trinity? Of course I believe in the Trinity. Do you believe God is good? Of course I believe God is good. Is he sovereign over your circumstances? Absolutely is. But th- this is artificiality here. This, this, is, this is like fun with our friends. <laughs> and then we're going to go out and we're going to go to our workplace or our school. We're going to go to the hospital. We're going to go back to our houses. We're going to interact with neighbors. And what we affirm in this room will be challenged by life experience. And you know that throughout the Bible, believers often struggle with this. Lord, you say this in your word, but my life experience says this other thing. And there's a collision of the two. And that's what's going on in Isaiah. You have these these people of Israel who are, they are the recipients of the covenant of God. Pastor Terry just talked about that in Romans chapter 9, right? These are the recipients of the covenant of God. These are the people of God. These are uh, 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 people that have a history of God's promises being revealed and his deliverances. And yet, what's going on? You've got Assyria. Remember the, remember the map? You've got Assyria. And Assyria basically is running all of this. And there's one little teeny tiny little dot of geography here. One little teeny, tot, teeny tiny little dot of land right about there called Judah. And their faith calls them to do what? what? What have we seen in the first part of Isaiah? The faith that these believers ought to have in the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah, calls them to do what? In the midst of being surrounded by the enemy. Trust in the Lord. In the Lord. Act on His promises. Don't side with the enemy. Don't... Don't lean on your own understanding, as Solomon would say in, in Proverbs chapter 3. And yet this is where we live, right? This is where we live when in the moment of life we're going, ah! And there's that little part of us that says, maybe, maybe trusting God isn't enough, right? Maybe there's a better way to handle this. Or maybe, maybe it's not logical. Maybe it's fear-based, right? Maybe we fear what's about to happen. And, and because we're acting in fear of the circumstances, that thing we don't want to happen, instead of acting on faith, which is acting on the promises of God, we, we, we go a different direction in terms of how we respond to that situation. Is, is this, is, you guys struggle with this like I do? This is where we live. We live in a place where our faith and our experience collide And that's why we need to remember that faith is acting on the promises of God in the midst of difficulty and in seemingly contrary experiences. That's where our friends are in the nation of uh, Judah right now in the book of Isaiah. They are, they're not only being tempted to not act in faith, they are acting contrary to faith. They're siding with Assyria. They're going after other gods. They're partnering with foreign nations, thinking that this is this is how we survive, right? How we survive is we build partnerships with some of these other nations 
And that's why, that's why we need this section of scripture. Why would God spend chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter telling us, see this nation here? Boom! Gone. <laughs> see this nation over here that seems powerful? Guess what's gonna happen here in a couple of generations? They're gonna be obliterated. If, I'll tell you what, if, if a newscaster in the sixth century where Isaiah, you know, the, the Fox News of the ancient Near East, right? And he got, got up and said, you know, this Assyria superpower, in one generation, they're going to be completely, completely annihilated. You'd be like, let's get rid of this guy. He didn't know what he's talking about, right? Right? Because that's what we look at that and we say, how could that possibly be the case? And see, that's what our circumstances do. Our circumstances lie to us. In terms of what's actually reality. Faith, you, you know this, but I want to say this. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, I know this. Faith is the only sure foundation we have to navigate the uncertainties and the challenges of life. And that's why we need Hebrews 11. That's why we need Isaiah. That's why we need the testimony of brothers and sisters. Because <laughs> what seems like it is an immovable Nation will crumble within a generation, as we'll see uh, in the book of Isaiah. So why why would God inspire chapter after chapter after chapter of this nation's going to go down, this nation's going to be destroyed, this nation won't last? It's to assure us, it's to assure us that, first of all, God is still in charge, and we ought not to act in foolish ways, contrary to faith, even when we are surrounded by difficult circumstances. Okay, you got that? All right, so back here. We're going to look, first of all, at Isaiah chapter 20. So turn over there, Isaiah chapter 20. This is, before we get to the nations, this is, I would suggest to you, one of the weirdest parts of the book. Okay? Um, I'm a pastor, which means I believe that there is a calling on my life to do what I'm doing with my life. And I wouldn't be doing that if I didn't think I was called to do it. Uh, in a similar but different way, the prophets of God were called to their ministries. And they didn't have a say in what their role was. God called them. They said, here I am, Lord, send me. And God said, here's what your life is going to look like. And you know that being a prophet in the Old Testament was not such an easy task. You you think, man, that'd be kind of cool, right? I get to work for God, you know, go around and speak for him. And yet you read things in the Old Testament like this. I want you to go marry a prostitute. Okay? Go marry a prostitute. And then she's going to be unfaithful to you. And then I want you to bring her back into... And and you're going, what? What? Um, heard you're going to have a baby here pretty soon. That's right, Lord. Um, put the, put the, the baby name book down because I'm going to name your kids. Here's name number one. Not my people. You're going to name your kid, not my people. Come here, not my people. Come for dinner, right? And you're, you're going to name, and you go, what? Because prophets received their commission from God. They, they didn't just go out and speak their own message. They, they spoke, remember what Peter says? No prophecy of scripture is an act of human judgment, but men spoke from God, right? It wasn't coming out of their own minds. They were giving the message of God. It wasn't their own uh, ideas. And so Mr. Isaiah is going to be called to do something here that I think would challenge any of us. Isaiah chapter 20. Nobody seems 
Yeah, no one takes their life for that's, that's That's good, Carl. Okay. All right. Chapter 20, verse 1. In the year that the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria... Interesting, that's Sargon II. And this is one of the, I think, one of the few or maybe even the only reference to Sargon in the book. But he was a historic figure. And it's one of the reasons, it's one of the many um, references to kings and rulers that we know existed from archaeology and other ancient Near Eastern sources. So this gives some historicity and validity to the book from outside the canon. Okay? So here he is. When, that, he, when he sent him and fought against, Ash, against Ashdod, that's a city, and captured it. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips. And take your shoes off your feet. And he did so. Going naked and barefoot. How many want to sign up to be a prophet? And there's a... Okay, just let me just finish the story and then we'll talk about what it means. And the Lord said... Okay, so you get the idea. Uh, Isaiah strips down and he's walking around the city... How do we say it down here? Naked? Is that how you say it? Okay. All right. I'm still working on my, my southern slang here. So, naked. Right. Um, how do you spell that? Never mind. Um, and the Lord... Okay, now listen. So, so, so the prophet of God, the prophet of God is walking around the city. And the Lord said... Okay, so this is the message of the Lord that Isaiah is giving as people are going... Right? <laughs> you can see him just... What's wrong with him? And the Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years. This is not like a one day, you know, like 30 second, you know, streak through the city kind of thing, right? (laughs) Three years. Remember Jeremiah laid on his side for how many years? As a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush. So the king of Assyria... So why, why would God have Isaiah do this for three years? Listen to this. So the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. Then they will be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their boast. So the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, such is our hope, where we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and now we, how shall we escape? What's the purpose of this? God is willing to go to extreme lengths, like stripping down his prophet, so that everybody does, it's what we all would do. Oh my, what's that? To get the attention of the people to say, if you do not repent, that's what you're going to be look like as the king of Assyria takes you into exile as his captives. That's the point. Now, here's, here's the spiritual reality, I think, behind this, okay? 
God is saying to us, there is something more shameful and more embarrassing than being physically exposed. And I think if this was the situation of any of us, we would feel embarrassment and shame, wouldn't we? Right? We would feel that. There is something worse than being physically exposed and feeling physical shame. And that is the shame and exposure of living away from God and bearing the consequences of that life. God is willing to take his prophet and shame him physically as a means of grace to try to demonstrate to people that need to repent, this is how serious this is. Better that we be physically shamed and exposed than to be shamed for all of eternity because we didn't repent and turn back to the Lord, right? So that's an interesting little part of this, but I think it, it demonstrates something of the heart of God and His the, the, the extent, the, the, the length to which he is willing to go to try to make his point, right? To, to, to give people time to repent. Okay. Um, and that last line is so, so telling, right? They thought, they thought that there was a better answer. They could turn to human assistance for help. And yet now they're in a predicament where they're saying, how are we going to escape from that situation? Okay. So with that interesting introduction, uh, that, that reminds us, doesn't it remind us how merciful God is? That that's, that's the extent He's willing to go to open our eyes to the reality of our own foolishness and giving us an opportunity to repent. Um, okay. 21. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. And as this develops, as the geography is listed here, we recognize that what he's talking about is he's coming back to talk about Babylon. As the wind storms in the Negev, remember that was the desert there, sweep on. It comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land. A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously, and the destroyer still destroys. Go up, Elam, lay siege, Media. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. For this reason, my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered, I cannot hear. So terrified I cannot see. My mind reels. Horror overwhelms me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They set the table. They spread out the cloth. They eat. They drink. Rise up, captains, oil and the shields. For thus the Lord says to me, go, station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. And when he sees riders and horsemen in pairs, and a train of donkeys, and a train of camels. Let him pay close attention, very close attention. Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower. That's a reference to Isaiah. And I am stationed every night at my guard post. Now, behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, 
fallen. Fallen is Babylon. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. Oh, my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor. What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. So that's a reference. Isaiah is, is the watchman and he's bringing his uh, vision from the Lord. He's bringing his message from the Lord. And what's going on here? Well, first of all, notice that uh, the wilderness of the sea is a reference in southern Babylon. The Negev there is the, is the reference there. And uh, what do you think about the reference in verse 2, the treacherous one? Who are we talking about there? Who's the treacherous one? Well, who's he talking to? Who's this prophecy against? It's against Babylon. And what's going to happen? Look at verse 2. Go up, Elam, lay siege, media. Those are members of... Those are two people groups that make up in part the Persian army. Well, what's the Persian army going to do? They're going to destroy Babylon. Okay, So the reference to the treacherous ones is Babylon. And we know uh, because we have something of some Babylonian history in our Bibles, when we think of a, a book like the book of Daniel, for example, we know that these were not nice people, were they? They were not nice people. Um, the, the Ninevites, do we know something about the Ninevites? Oh yes, they, they were so wicked. They were so violent in terms of, I, I remember st- uh, studying through the book of Jonah and reading some of the history of the Ninevites and, uh, um, uh, in the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonians. And these were people that were horrible. In fact, I, re- I remember editing stuff out of my sermon going, I can't say this from the pulpit because it's too graphic and there are little ears listening. Uh, and that's why Jonah, when God shows mercy to Jonah, Jonah has a fit over it, right? Because that's how wicked they were. And Jonah had difficulty accepting God's compassion toward these exceedingly violent people. So they're the treacherous ones, right? These are violent, uh, treacherous people. And yet, Elam and uh, Media, as members of the Persian army, will come in. And what does it, what does it say there? I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused, and for this reason my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of women in labor. I am so bewildered I cannot hear, and so terrified I cannot see. Right? Isaiah is is seeing this violent overthrow of Babylon coming, and it's overwhelming to him, isn't it? And then the, the watchman on the tower, as he looks out, and he sees this come to pass in the future. Isaiah is looking into the future, as it were, in this prophecy, in this vision. And he sees the day when the troop of riders and the horsemen come, and one says to the other, Babylon is fallen. Um, and this is an interesting picture. Look at verse 10. Oh, my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. Uh, that is a reference. You remember the, the threshing floor was a, a facility where they beat out grain and was able to separate the part of grain that you eat from the part of grain that you don't eat. And um, so what's going on here is, is Isaiah is picturing the threshing floor as God is, God is separating out his enemies from his people and he is judging his enemies. Uh, giving a small glimpse of hope to his people Israel. 
that uh, that they will survive this day. Okay, so we see here uh, one more reference. We've already seen a judgment on Babylon. We see another one here. Notice also the reference to Edom in verse 11, the oracle concerning Edom. You say, well, where is that? I'm glad you asked. Let's just go back to our map here real quick. Edom is right in this area right here, okay, down by the Red Sea. And we see that it too will be destroyed. Chapter 21, verse 11, the oracle concerning Edom, the one who keeps calling to me from Seir, watchman, how far, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire. And come back again. What, an, what a weird prophecy. Can, can we just admit that? That's kind of strange. What, what is he talking about here? Well, seer is another reference to Edom. Okay, you need to know that. The watchman, again, is Isaiah. Isaiah, that's one of his titles in this book. He's the watchman. He, he's looking and he's seeing through the prophecy that God gives him what's going to be happening in the future. Now, notice there's a dual message here. The watchman says, in other words, Isaiah says to Edom, Morning comes, but also night. What's he saying there? What I think he's saying, and, and this, is, this is what the guys that know this book much better than I do, uh, what they think he's saying also, is Isaiah is announcing to Edom, there will be deliverance from Assyria. Right? Morning comes. There's the deliverance from Assyria. But then what happens? Night falls again, right? Which means there's going to be a future oppression from Babylon. And so, there, and it's kind of interesting how it ends. Morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire, come back again. What's he saying? Isaiah is, is foreseeing in the future that Edom will be delivered from Assyria. There'll be great celebration. And then Babylon will come again. They'll once again be oppressed. And they'll want to know what the prophet of God says again. So he says, you know, come, come back in your next oppression, so to speak, and I will speak to that situation as well. And doesn't that just remind you? God, God holds the historic timeline between his two hands, doesn't he? He knows exactly what's going to happen. He, even telling the people, well, here's what's going to happen, and then in the future there's going to be another oppression, so you're going to want to come back, you know, in a few years, and we'll talk again. But illustrating the fact that God knows exactly what's going on. Everything is happening exactly according to his plan. And Isaiah, as his spokesman, is is speaking wisely and accurately into the situation. One more. Arabia. Look at this. Verse 13. The oracle about Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia you must spend the night, O caravans of the Dedanites, Bring water for the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Timah. Meet the fugitive with bread, for they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus says the Lord to me, in a year, notice the time frame here, in a year as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate. And the remainder of the numbers of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken. What's he saying? The, the Dedanites there are inhabitants of northwest Arabia. So let's once again go back there, get our geography right. So Arabia is this whole area down here, right? So northwest Arabia would be right up in this area, just east of the Red Sea. 
Sorry, I'm going to forget you guys. So Arabia is this whole area down here, uh, largely what we think of as Saudi Arabia today, but even broader into some of the other countries as well. So northwest Arabia would be right here, just east of the Red Sea. That's who he's talking about right now, okay? This prophecy coming. Now now notice, if we go back to the notes here, um, there we are. Uh, th- those are the inhabitants of that northwest region. Now, now look at look at the reference. Bring water and meet the fugitives. What's going to happen? W- what does he mean? Bring water and meet the fugitives. What is Isaiah foreseeing is going to happen? That's right. That's right. What's going to happen is as God brings judgment on Assyria, people are going to flee. Right? Remember, Assyria controls so many of these these countries, these regions. And what's going to happen is as God brings judgment on Assyria, people are going to flee that nation into other areas. So this this northwest Arabia region, the city uh, called Kedar that's mentioned twice in this section, that will be a refugee location. So that's interesting. God's not only saying he's bringing judgment on Assyria. He's not only saying, you know, your nation is going to be destroyed. He says, oh, and you guys in Arabia, get ready. You know, stock up at Sam's and Costco because you've got refugees coming. And God is even able to tell the people that aren't a part of the battle, you're going to be affected by this. So, as, as, now what does all this have to do? Let, let's zoom out for a minute. Yes, ma'am. Yes. That's right. Yeah. There, there are definitely political situations today that, that mimic some of these same realities. Yeah, very good. So let, let's just zoom out for a minute and, and remember this. Um, what is all this illustrating? It's illustrating that God knows exactly what is happening. He is giving us details about the future from destruction to people fleeing to what's going to happen with this nation, to oppression ceases, but then there's another oppression coming. God owns history, doesn't he? He knows exactly what's going to happen. Why would he be telling us all this? Two reasons. One, he is. this is not just so much for the benefit of all these nations. This is to benefit his people to say, all these countries that you think your hope is in, this is what's going to happen to them. Do you really want to trust them over me? You see that? He's sobering up the people saying, every other foundation that we try to stand upon that is not the Lord will crumble. God is demonstrating that every false savior, every every hope we have other than the Lord is ultimately an exercise in futility because it will ultimately fail. Right? That's the first thing he's doing. What's the other thing he's doing? He's showing us that a faith in the Lord in the midst of all of this political unrest, that faith in the Lord is your only hope. It it is your only spiritual sanity. And, you know, we do this too, right? It may not be, you know, siding with a political nation. You know, you may not be tempted to go side with Babylon But I'll tell you what, every day, every, every day, we are tempted to put our trust and our hope in other things that we think are better security 
than our faith in the Lord, right? And especially, especially when that faith, what God says, what his promises say is true, we look out and go, are you sure? You want me to do that? That seems crazy. Lord, this seems like a much better solution, right? And there are realities when you get a medical illness. There are realities when you have unsaved children. There are realities when you're facing difficulty at work or financial trouble. There are realities that you and I, decisions that we make about what we're going to entertain ourselves with and all the rest where the world is drawing us into what seems like a better solution. And God says, don't just do something, stand here, right? Stand on faith and act on what you know God has said, okay? So th- this is for us, guys. This is so relevant to see how God, God demonstrates the fallacy of trusting in anything or anyone else other than him. Yeah, Jim. <laughs> bless this mess that I've made. Yeah. Yeah, I think we do. I think we do. And I appreciate that because I think we can all we can all look backward in our life. Raise your hand if if this is true. We can all look backward in our life and see when we so to speak put our trust in the Assyrians of our past. Right? We can do that. Um and yeah, and then, and then it's like, <laughs> bless the mess, Lord. You know, you know what the neat thing is? God is gracious and merciful, and he is in the business of rescuing us out of our own made messes. Right? So praise the Lord for his kindness. And even we see that in, in this text here. Okay, so here's what you're going to do. I want you to, I'm going to read 22, and we're going to do another group exercise here. You guys did so good on this last time. I just want to give you another opportunity to do it here, okay? So looking at Isaiah, this is going to be a whole group exercise Isaiah 22, now this is about Israel, okay? It's the oracle concerning the valley of vision. This was, uh, you'll, you'll hear some reference to some old Puritan works here. But, um, so remembering that this is about Israel, I'm going to read it, and as I read it, you start to think and process, and we're going to try to deduce what the message is here. Now, remember last time, it was helpful to remember, as I read this, we're trying to figure out what, what is the indicting judgment that God is bringing, right? What is he saying the people are doing wrong? And what is God saying about who he is and what he's going to do? Okay, so remember those two things. I will read, you follow along, and then uh, we'll study this together, okay? The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What is the matter with you now? that you have gone all gone up to the housetops. You who were full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city, your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. That's a picture of um, when Assyria came in to... Uh, the northern kingdom um, that there was uh, there was very little fight that was uh, that was put up there 
Okay, back to the text. Um, verse 4. Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Then your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate and he removed the defense of Judah. And in that day you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest and you saw that the breaches in the walls of the city of David were many and you collected the waters of the lower pool. Then you counted the house of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall and you made a reservoir between the two walls. For the waters of the old pool, but you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head and to wearing sackcloth. And instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and the slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in, the, uh, in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here and whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? And for you hew a tomb on the height you carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. And as he is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. And there you will die. And there your splendid chariots will you there and there your splendid chariots will be the shame, you shame of your master's house. I will dispose you from office, I will pull you down from your station. And then it will come about on that day that I will summon my servant Elakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority. He will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. And I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all of the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of the vessels from bowls to all the jars. And that day declares the Lord, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall and the load hanging on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. I'll give you a historical hint. This is about ultimately the Babylonian invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay. So what do you see in terms of, we're, think, we're not going to look at every detail, but two things. What is the indictment? Why is God bringing this judgment? And two, who is God? What has he wanted the people to do uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, what they're not doing? Okay, what do you see? That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Right. That's right. 
Very good. Yeah, so a, a trust in self. Would you agree that's kind of the weave throughout this whole thing? Yeah, and, and just like we've seen in other nations and in, in Israel, the, the pride of self-trust is the main indictment that God brings, right? Okay. Yeah. Right. Very good, Rob. Thank you. Yeah, what, what's he saying there? God brings his message upon the people in order that they might do what? What's God looking for? Repentance, right? And, and repentance was signified in this culture with sackcloth and ashes. When you were broken over your sin and contrite and, and you were illustrating that you were turning away from your sin, you put on sackcloth, literally a, a, a change of clothes, and you put ashes on your forehead to demonstrate physically what was going on in your heart, which was a repentance and a contrition. And so like Rob has just uh, noted, that's the right response of the people as God brings judgment against them. But But what are they doing? I, instead of... Uh, verse 12, right? Instead of weeping and wailing and shaving the head and wearing a sackcloth, what are they doing instead in verse 13? They're having a party. That temporary relief that, that uh, Carl mentioned and Rob mentioned, that, that, that temporary relief, they think, great, we've done it, right? And they have a party about it instead of seeing that their hearts are still desperately wicked and, and apart from God. And, uh, yeah, we might die tomorrow, but hey, let's live it up. Let's party. How many, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to make efforts to share the gospel. That's happening on Awana, right? When we're meeting children from our community, parents that don't know the Lord, we're engaging them. It's happening in our door-to-door ministry. We're firing that back up. Yeah, you're, you're hearing about that uh, in uh, the worship service this morning. Uh, we're doing that in our counseling ministry, meeting with people in the community and trying to connect their life problems with their need for a Savior so we're, we're trying, that's why we're here, is to make connections to people in the gospel to see that they need a Savior, right? That's, that's why we're here, that's what we're trying to do. And, and how many times is this the response of people? We're calling them to repentance because of this seriousness of the challenges they're facing in life and that, that they need to have a relationship with Christ and be forgiven. And what do they do? I'm just living for the weekend, man. I'm living for that next football game. I'm, I'm living for that next party. I'm living for that next paycheck. Is, is this not the response of a 21st century modern culture? We don't care what's in the future. We don't care about tomorrow. We're going to live life to the fullest today. And if we die tomorrow, so be it. Right? That, 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 it's the same worldview. And calling men and women out of that to see that they ought to be mourning, not having a party. Because of their rebellion against God. What's, what title is God using of himself in this section? He said it like three times. The Lord of hosts. What's that? That's God and BDUs, right? This is God coming as the commander in chief of the army. This is not an occasion for a party. This is not God coming to deliver this people. This is God coming in judgment leading the host of heaven behind him. Uh, this is the commander-in-chief of heaven coming with the sword on men and women that he created for his glory, but who refused to bow the knee to him in trust and repentance. All right, what else do you see in this chapter? You're doing great.
Yeah. Isn't that scary? God removing his protection. Look at verse 17. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. He is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into a vast country. That's Babylon. And there you will die. And there your splendid chariots will be. And these are hard words. If if you're the people of God and you're hearing this about yourself, listen to this. You shame of your master's house. What was Israel supposed to be? What was the what was God's people, the nation, supposed to be to the Gentiles, these people that we're talking about? A light. Right? They were supposed to be the testimony of this is your creator, this is your God. This is what life is about, is knowing him in relationship and worship. And I don't know too many other words of harsher judgment in the Old Testament than what he says in these verses, that they have utterly failed. And as you know, what's going to happen? In just another generation, Judah will be taken off into Babylon, and most of the people, what's going to happen to them there? They're either going to die in the battle or they're going, to, they're going to die in Babylon in the deportation. And it will be that next generation, the Daniels and Hananiahs and Mishaels and Azariah, that's the hope of Israel is the generation beyond this generation. You think of Psalm 78 when, when uh, the psalmist recounts how we ought to teach our children to entrust the things of God and to not forget His works and to boast in Him and not be like your fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation who did not hope in God. Right? That, that's, that's what God is saying here is going to happen to this generation. What else do you see? Mm-hmm. That's right. Very good. Okay, you see the reference in 20 to Elakim? All right. And what are they, I think Carl nailed the, the understanding here. What is that illustrating? All the people, even though this destruction happens, they're going to gather around one more human leader as their hope, right? And that's going to unite the people temporarily. And then that leader will fail, just like all other human kings do. You know, we're pretty stubborn, aren't we? We're pretty stubborn. God humbles us, and we go, yeah, I know I'm supposed to trust you, Lord. And then we go right back to going, what we usually do is putting our hope in other things. And guys, these verses remind us that even the people of God struggle with these things. And and we ought not to keep doing the same thing the same way, expecting different results. Roger. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. That's right. That's right. Very good. Now, let's remember, this, this is... If, if Isaiah was a piece of music, these chapters are the minor keys of the book, aren't they? These are the sobering portions, the judgment portions. And the thing we have to remember is that God has already promised, what? 
he's keeping a remnant, right? Remember the child? The child's name, right? Remnant will return, right? There's, there's, there's hope for the future, but we have to walk through these valleys to see that their sin is serious. And in, in, in a contemporary application, we do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing. And so to remind ourselves that in the midst of contrary experiences and difficult life happenings, real faith is acting on the promises of God and recognizing that that alone is a sure foundation. So these things, as Paul tells the Corinthians, are written for our instruction, right? So, so that we would not make the same mistakes as our brothers and sisters who have come before us. Okay? We'll put a comma in your notes. We'll come back and we'll talk about the nation of Tyre next time. Father, thank you for these verses that are a minor key. These are not fun, uh, happy chapters. And yet we need the soberness we need the seriousness of what these chapters bring so that we will not make the same mistakes, that we will not trust in ourselves as we see these people doing, and that we would not act outside of your plan and outside of your word because things are happening in life and we're fearful or we feel like somehow you can't handle it or that this is a special occasion, Lord, help us to resolve once again today that we trust in you alone, ultimately. And whatever circumstances or difficulties we face, whether it's personal or relational or circumstantial or financial, emotional, whatever it is, that that we will just reaffirm in our hearts that trusting you and acting making decisions, responding in light of what your word has said is wisdom and is life and is hope and is even happiness. Lord, help us to see through the enticements of the world's solutions. Help us not to buy into those. And will you help us to rest securely in our relationship with you through Christ? Lord, thank you for these verses and and thank you for Mr. Isaiah and your spirit that has preserved this inspired text for us that we might learn and act and change in light of what we've read today. In Christ's name, amen.